Good evening. My name is Simon O'Connor. I'm the director of MOLLY, the Museum of Literature Ireland, uh, which I'm delighted to say has just reopened uh, this week on St. Stephen's Green. Um, you're very welcome to this edition of Generation X, where Professor Barry McRae will be in conversation with author Belinda McKeown. Um, we're delighted to present this event in partnership with the Keown Octon Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Um, Generation X describes the group of people born between 1965 and 1985. So that's a generation caught between baby boomers and millennials, uh, characterized by anti-establishment, slacker culture, cynicism, irony, uh, and after the global economic crash, um, negative equity. So it's, uh, it's an American term uh, describing American lives. Um, the moniker perhaps fails to accurately represent the experience of those who came of age uh, during the 1980s and 90s in Ireland. Um, so this series invites artists and writers who grew up in an Ireland shaped by the troubled social justice movements, EU membership, uh, the peace process, um, and the Celtic Tiger, of course, uh, to share their work and to reflect on the social um, and cultural influences at home and abroad. Um, Belinda McKeown uh, is one of my favourite writers, uh, the author of the novels Solace and Tender, uh, which won and were nominated for awards, including the Irish Book of the Year 2011 and the Encore Prize 2016. Um, Belinda's short fiction has been published in several anthologies and journals, uh, most recently Granta and Being Various Faber New Irish Stories. Um, she's Associate Professor of Creative Writing at Rutgers University, uh, where she has taught fiction since 2015, um, and she has an MFA from Columbia University and lives in upstate New York. Um, Barry McRae is the author of three books, uh, a novel, The First Verse, uh, winner of the Farrell Grumley Prize for Fiction, uh, and then two academic works, most recently Languages of the Night, which won the Wellick Prize for Best Book of 2016. Um, he's Donald Orkio, family professor of Irish studies and professor of English, lang Irish language and literature and Romance languages and literatures at the University of Notre Dame, where he teaches modern European literature on its campuses in Indiana, Rome, and Dublin. Um, before I go, uh, I'd just like to remind you that becoming a Molly member or giving membership to a friend uh, is the best way to support the museum um, and its programming. So to find out more about, uh, about that, visit molly.ie forward slash membership. Um, wherever you're watching in the world, um, I really hope you enjoy the event. We're delighted uh, to be, uh, be co-hosting um, with the Keown Octon Institute. Uh, and I will pass you over now to Belinda McKeown and Professor Barry McRae. Thank you. You're all very welcome um, to our first meeting in this series about um, Irish Generation X writers. Um, and our guest this evening or this afternoon, for those of you in the US, is Belinda McKeown. Uh, before I start talking to Belinda, I would just like to thank two people in particular um, on the Notre Dame side. We're delighted to have this collaboration with uh, the Museum of Literature Ireland. And we're very grateful to them. But on the Notre Dame side, I'd like to thank Catherine Wilsden, who co-conceived this theories, this series with me, and our colleague Mary Hendrickson over in South Bend. And um, without them, this wouldn't have happened. Um, so our first guest is Belinda McKeown, um, a novelist, well, a writer, in fact, um, who is now living in the US, but is originally from Ireland. She's the author of two prize-winning novels, Solace and Tender. Um, so you're very welcome, Belinda. Thanks for making Thanks, Barry. Time. Thank you. I thought I might start by asking you about the title, the, the, the term Generation X. As you know, in the US, it's in very much in vogue now to 
think of the country in various demographic categories, according to various demographic categories, one of which is generation. Um, and it's usually described as a conflict between the baby boomers, those born just after the war, and the millennials, those born after the mid 80s. But in between, there is the sandwich generation, Generation X, who in the American imagination are characterized by a series of, um, well, a series of different traits. And I suppose my first question to you is to what extent do you think there is an Irish Generation X, that the writers born, let's say, in the, or people born in the long 1970s, between the late 60s and the mid 80s, to what extent they are a definable generation and to what extent um, it makes sense to talk of them using the American term? Hi, thanks for having me and hi to everybody who's attending. Um, so I, I read a piece by the writer um, Dara Cochet. He wrote a book called Mother Folklore, where he talked about the idea of generations as astrology for sociologists, which I thought was really good um, because there is something silly about it, you know, about the categories. And particularly when you try to, um, I mean, I think the Generation X works in an American context because it was invented in an American context, really, you know, like, uh, like in, indeed, as was the, the notion of, of teenage, uh, of a teenager. Um, it, it doesn't translate in any straightforward way to Ireland. Um, the UK is another matter, but Ireland, um, the generation born between 1965 and 1980, for one thing, as writers, didn't really start producing work until the mid to late 90s. So there isn't a way to compare, um, you know, the, 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 the work of, uh, where's the David Foster Wallace of Ireland? Well, they, they weren't writing at the same time as David Foster Wallace. Where's the Brad Easton Ellis? They weren't writing at the same time as Brad Easton Ellis. If they exist, maybe they don't. Their work would, would have been published much later. So there's a lag in that sense. But there's also a way in which um, Generation X had uh, a sort of a different fight, you know, in America or a different um, identity, obviously, in America than in Ireland. I mean, the, the the generation born in the 1970s in Ireland weren't like the generation born in the 1970s in the US. The generation born in Ireland were still dealing with so many of the hangovers of the equivalent of the baby boomers. Um, you know, you talked there about the, them as the sandwich generation in the US reacting to the baby boomers and revolting against the baby boomers who were in turn revolting against the silent generation, um, the, the generation who went to war, to World War II. Um, but our, our, our reactions and our rebellions uh, in Ireland were of a totally different nature. And they, they've caused this sort of layering, I think, where in some ways, if you, you, if you use novelists as an example, you could say that Anne Enright's early books were Generation X books, right? But she was born in the 50s, right? No, sorry, Anne. She was born in the early 60s. So she's just about to be in the Generation X uh, category. Um, but then you could also say of some of the novels produced in the last 10 years that they show some of the characteristics of Generation X, the irony, the malaise, you know, the, 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 the dark wryness. Um, so I think it's... Um, it's not really possible to just take it and slot it wholesale onto the Irish experience. Nonetheless, do you think that there are experiences that our generation had, excuse me, and um, those of us born in the 1970s, that do make us um, distinct from the, the generation before us or the generation coming after us, whether as writers or just as people? 
I mean, yeah, of course. Um, but it's to generalize. I mean, it's. I think for 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 many of us, the fact that that our that our education was free, um, third level education was accessible in a way it hadn't been previously was was obviously a, a massive thing. Um, but then, you know, along with that access and and with the with the openness to the world and you know the the European open like the fact that we're becoming part of a European um, project at that time. Along with that was the continuing um, sort of crushing influence of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, I was born in Longford in 1979, and five years later in Longford, the Aunt Lovett, um, the death of Aunt Lovett happened. Um, we're only, we're still in many ways discovering the extent and depth of the, of the abuse carried out by priests, you know, sexual abuses and the abuses that happened in institutions. And that was still happening during that time. Um, and, and then the other thing that I, that I really feel have to say is that, you know, in Ireland, the X case was what defined Generation X. You know, our X was of a totally different nature. So um, I suppose it's that combination of moving forward um, and, and yet still being stuck in the sludge that uh, you know, the equivalent of the silent generation we're stuck in, not just the baby boomers, but the generation, two generations ago. I suppose it, um, you mentioned the 90s there as being the key decade um, when I suppose Generation X, if we call them that in Ireland, started to uh, publish and express their voices um, culturally. Um, and if you think about it, we entered the 1990s, a poor country um, with high unemployment an almost entirely white country um, where divorce was illegal, homosexuality was illegal. And we left the 90s and none of those um, things were the case. I wonder if you might say something to, um, about your own experience of the 90s from that point of view, in terms of, I suppose, feminism um, or any of these other social issues that your work touches on. Um, well, I. I was in in secondary school in a convent for the first part of the of the 90s and I was in co college at Trinity for the second part of the 90s so there were two starkly different experiences and in a way for me that was you know that was me moving from the baby boomer or silent generation land into something like generation x into something like what you know what I the, the 90s of which I had heard tell and there were only a rumor when I was living in Longford as a teenager but by the time I was in Dublin and meeting people from diverse backgrounds and um, in a college where women campaigned for uh, access to abortion and where women, you know, would, would write phone numbers in the backs of, of doors. Um, it was a different country, you know, in several ways. Um, sorry if you can hear my baby and screaming in the background. Um, it's his nap time. Um, so my experience, yeah, was of a sort of um, like a generational shift, um, which was the rural urban divide as, as well. Maybe, you know, moving from the country to the city and moving from particularly my, you know, a farming, a small farm to living with friends in Dublin, you know, and living a very free life, um, living, ha having intellectual access that I hadn't had before, um, you know, by which I mean a library and essays to write and um, a university education it was it was a big 
life-changing event for me but I'm I feel I'm going off the point a little bit now so maybe pull me back in and remind me what you're asking me no no you're on the point completely this I I thought maybe we would talk about then the first um, part of that divide um the convent school part if you like the way you set it up there because your work deals a lot and very sensitively um with with these two poles um the let's call it the countryside and Dublin, and then later on with the third pole, which is the US, um, in the in 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 the end of tender. But let's start with the first part of that, and maybe say something about when you look back at the cultural landscape of your childhood, um, what you feel when you think of the you know the cultural soup that we're all cooked in, um, what look what look to you like the defining features of it now when you look back, the things that most shaped the right. I mean, so when when um. When that film was often spoken of as a defining film of, of Generation X came out, Reality Bites, um, I was 15, I think, 14 or 15, and um, I couldn't go to see it in the cinema because it didn't come to the cinema in Longford. But I remember reading a lot about it in, in the magazines that I got and seeing the clothes that uh, Winona Ryder was wearing in the film and just finding this like an intoxicating, you know, incredible looking thing and and, and the storyline you know about these young people who lived in in a, in a in a flat basically and you know just did whatever the hell they wanted it was um so attractive to me and it could not have been more different to the life that i was living you know i i was the eldest um of a farming family you know i i laugh when i there's a sort of it's often one of the one of the things that's often said about Generation X is that they, you know, it's the latchkey generation in America, right? They because of divorce and because of um, other factors, they were often the generation who came home from school and were there by themselves and kind of left to their own devices, and so they they were creative for that reason, or they had, you know, they they knew how to do it boredom. I mean, I think in Ireland, if you were bored, you got landed with a job. If you were in a, if you were in rural Ireland and you were bored. You got you got sent to the bog, or you you had to go out on the farm. There was no like, and if you behaved like the kind of disaffected teenager that Winona Ryder's character is, or disaffected nineteen or twenty year old, you know you might not actually get a slap, but you get a metaphorical slap. You know there just wasn't, we didn't have um, that register. So that was my experience. Was was still, I think I was still living in the Ireland to to a certain extent of even though we just had elected a female president in Ireland, even though, you know, the, Ireland had gone to the World Cup or whatever the markers of modernity you might want to use were, um, we didn't have a very different life to, you know, probably a, a, a decade, people growing up a decade or two earlier. It was, it was, um, um, school was the, was the place where you got to see um, other people, um, other I don't know, other ideas, to have space for oneself. Um, I I think that if there had been a film or a book that had represented my experience then as a teenager, I would have just eaten it up, you know? If there had been an Irish TV show, the equivalent of my so-called life, say, or um, an Irish novel, um, the equivalent of, I don't don't know what the equivalent of, of, maybe like, Claire Massoud's later novel, um, The Emperor's Children. I just would have eaten that up, but they didn't exist. You know, the the TV shows that we were watching were American or Australian, and um, the American ones were very much about Generation X. The Australian ones were about the beach. Um, 
Tender begins with um, a quotation from a poem that um, we all read for the Leaving Cert, um, Dreams Fled Away, um, um, by Thomas Kinsler. Um, what about the, the literary influences of, um, um, of your young, the younger part of your life? McGahern, I know, was a, was a big figure for you too. You know, I mean, it's funny because in a way, when I read Amongst Women, um, even though it was set in the 50s, it, that it, it, I ate that up because I recognized in what those, the girls were living with, um, the, the daughters of that house, not, not, not the intensely abusive aspect of it, but just the silent, you know, certain aspects of, of, of that rural existence um, in a strictly and more conservative family um, with not very many outlets. Um, I felt like I was reading about my own um, adolescence or my own experience. Um, so that was why McGarren became really important to me. And, you know, it's a, it's a sort of, um, it was an infatuation for me, his work for a long time. Um, and I think because it spoke to me so, and uh, because I read that novel Amongst Women when I was 14, I think it was given it as a birthday present from a neighbor and I just, it sort of blew the doors off the, the shed for me, you know. Um, but I do think that um, for people growing up, you know, our generation growing up uh, in Ireland and starting to write, say, in the, in the early 90s or whenever it was that you started to write, I think the influences were largely of the McGarren ilk, you know, if, if you were looking in a domestic sense. You know, if you look at the novels that were published um, in the 80s, for instance, there aren't any, I mean, there's no McGarren in the 80s, um, but there's a lot of um, William Trevor. Um, Banville had a novel every couple of years. Um, Edna O'Brien had novels every couple of years. Um, there, and, and, you know, Edna's um, work is not at all of the, the silent generation ilk, mm. but um, there wasn't really a novelist of of, of um, doing something different, like doing something radically different, until um, Anne Haverty actually with uh, One Day as a Tiger in um, the early I can't remember the year, but it was I think the late eighties or early nineties, and then maybe Jamie O'Neill's at Swim Two Boys. It took a very long time, in, as, as far as I can see, for that kind of work to push through. And I just wonder why that was, you know, because um, it's either that people weren't writing, you know, people who were like, say, 25 in 1990 weren't writing or they weren't getting published because their work, if it was in any way um, ironic or postmodern or disaffected or any of those Generation X qualities were attached to it, it just didn't speak to what publishers wanted from Irish writers at the time. And I think that's another reason why, you know, subconscious or unconsciously or um, uh, intuitively, I started to write in the tradition or in the, in the form of what I knew to be um, considered powerful Irish writing, you know, the McGahern, etc. Um, and it took me until well after my first novel was published to start to realise that there was a, a big amount of mimesis there and I needed to kind of dig myself out from underneath right. it. And I suppose, as you're saying, a lot of um, what McGahern and, in a way, Edna O'Brien were doing, um, these struggles against uh, the Catholic Church and um, certain kinds of social mores were very current for us. Which right, is... well, I mean, and, um, Amongst Women published in 1990, you know, the first line is, as he weakened more and grew afraid of his daughters. I mean, it's like a portrait of one generation. It is a portrait of one generation giving way to another. You know, his daughters... And that's the thing about Generation X in Ireland. His daughters are not Generation X in terms of when they were born. The, the, the girls in that novel were born in the 19... 
late 1940s probably. But by the end of the novel, they it is as though he's portraying teenagers in the 80s or 90s, you know. Um, they're, they behave as adults burying their father the way that teenagers behaved in... Um, American novels, you know, they have they have acquired that kind of freedom um, of thought. I mean, Sheila, one of the girls, um, refuses to bring her daughters to the house because she wants them to grow up with the confidence that she didn't have. And he's, so McGarren's actually quite explicit about the, the generational differences. Um, so, I mean, so it's, and of course, I mean, as a stylist, you know, he, he did he was inventive. He took risks and he didn't give a fuck in so many ways. So, of course, he spoke to our generation. Um, but I do think that, I mean, it's complicated, um, but I think that um, there's a way in which his work now has been put aside for a while because writers are looking, you know, want to look to other influences or maybe to a different idea of um, identity, um, Irish identity, whatever that is. And that's one thing that um, he would always have considered childish, you know, talking about identity at all, talking about generations at all. So what about Trinity, Trinity then? Because when we chatted um, to prepare for this a bit, you noticed when you saw the lineup um, that there's a lot of Trinity. Um, and there was obviously a key moment for you. Um, you write about it a lot um, as a, a kind of pivot between one, one phase of life and another. Um, but what about tr your experience in Trinity in the 90s and um, uh, how it shaped you or what was going on there that that influenced you as a writer? Well, I took a workshop when I was, I took a couple of workshops. So I took a workshop with you, Barry. Um, you were one of the other participants in the first year that I was there in 97 with Deirdre Madden. And Paul Murray was in that class and uh, Lainey Quillanon and Susan Lanigan. Um, and so, you know, a number of us have gone on to publish from that workshop. Um, but I think that also ties into my earlier point, like who got access, you know, who was published um, at these times. One of the great things about now when so many books are being published is that the sense that there isn't such a sort of um, like list of boxes that you have to tick in order to be published. And I do think like a Trinity um, education or a Trinity connection was one of those, for, you know, for better or for worse. But for me, I mean, Trinity was like, I've, I mean, I've written about it a lot because it did, it just kind of, you know, it opened a lot up for me. It, um, I just learned in, in lots of different ways. I learned how to speak differently, you know, in some senses, um, in a narrow, cringe-inducing way. I got, you know, like a Trinity accent. But in others, I mean, finally, what um, is often sort of spoken of in terms of Generation X, irony, satire, parody, those things kind of came into so many of the people that I met spoke in those modes. And... You know, it's interesting, like, um, just jumping back a bit to childhood, one of, when I started to write and one of my great comforts was um, as, as, a, as a kid and as a teenager was, was parody and satire on TV and radio. Um, you know, we, like, we all grew up, I think, no, I won't generalize, but so many of us of that generation grew up listening to Scrap Saturday. Um, I remember the joy of, and only a certain chunk of our generation will get this, but children's TV like Paggio's Junk Box and another show called Scratch Saturday, was, which was a kind of a version of Scrap Saturday. These were like, these were brilliant because they were run by um, theatre people in Ireland who, at the, you know, couldn't, didn't have any work maybe in the theatre or in, you know, TV. But they, so they made children's TV and it was extremely um, 
irreverent and it was layered and you know much like the den a few years later it was speaking to two different audiences you could because jerry stanbridge children mm-hmm. that's right jerry stanbridge and i mean Anne enright worked in children's tv she also worked on nighthawk so it's interesting to look at the way that satire and irony you know were, were foundational to the beginning of her career as well um but um you know i think that i just found so much um uh, I don't know, it was such a relief to see and watch things that were so deeply funny and irreverent. And maybe just that was that's that was a, a kind of a way out of the rest of the landscape, you know. And even in my, you know, my family, our way of talking to each other are the siblings and, and my mother, you know, it's it's a kind of, there's a huge amount of, of reference and, and parody woven into the way that we talk, you know. Um, so I think that when I, when I went to Trinity, um, that just became, I, I think that, um, first of all, I was bewildered by the, the, the extent to which people seemed to talk in, 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 to talk in a language that was created, that was, that was woven almost entirely of irony. And then I started to enjoy it. Um, and there were other things as well. I mean, the usual stuff. Um, but, but for me, it was, uh, um, it was, a uh, just a massive opening up of, of horizons. Um. I think you're so right about the satire and, and irony. And when I look through the list of people that I'll be talking to in this, um, it's one thing that really makes their work stand apart from either the generation before or after them. And the way you describe it, their language that was woven entirely out of irony, that is what it felt like. And I wonder, does that happen from being in this ambiguous position we were neither fully well, but that I mean that's what they talk you know they like when when generation x is written about and theorized about irony is always a really big part of that conversation because I suppose the, the you know the theory is that um, it's it's a it's a rebellion against um the certainties that that the previous generation believed in or you know the respect that a previous generation the baby boomers had for um the corporate world or authority um, for the idea of the American dream in, in America, and instead, uh, with the gen- with Generation X, you get you get kids who are like ironically talking in uh, tropes, in you know, Im- mimicking advertisements, um, saying things that they mean but they don't mean, you know. So saying that something, you know, that that, that something is is cool when they mean the opposite, um, and. Um, you know, that's, that's a way of occupying two different realms at once, two different registers at once. Like if something is, is working a satire or parody, you have to understand the thing it's satirizing and the thing it's, par- it's, it's a parody of at the same time as you understand and, and enjoy the, the parody. And I think maybe that's very true also of, of Ireland's ge- version of Generation X. I mean, because we still had this foot in, um, you know, the Ireland of the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, and yet we were we had the other foot in the nineties, you know? Um, so you're kind of speaking in two different languages at once. And for me, the urban rural divide was another, was another uh, prong of that. So I think there were so many of us, you know, unlike the American generation X, which is a small generation, there were, I mean, when we were growing up, there were children everywhere you looked, hanging out of every corner. You right, know, right. Because we didn't, because we didn't, we weren't small. The, the generation X in America was a small generation because the parents had the pill. <laughs> We didn't have that. Yeah, right, yeah. So there were loads of us. Yeah. Right. Um, will you read something from um, for us now? 
I'm going to read a short piece from Tender that I haven't read before, um, in, you know, in, as part of the public reading circuit. But, but, but I'm reading this part in, in, in response to what you asked me earlier about influences and about, um, you know, how the certain ideas of the literary tradition, um, the canon or what, what constitute our, constitutes Irish writing um, were so influential for, for me. I mean, I, I won't generalize because there are lots of people in, genera- in my generation who are writers who were, who were immediately innovative and inventive and had the confidence to kind of shake off older generations. Um, and I, the, the writer here that I'm, that, I'm, that I'm referring to is also very, you know, Pat McCabe, um, you know, his work kind of blew up um, certain ideas of, of what Irish fiction was. But he, he was, um, by the time I was writing, you know, an established, um, respected male, you know, um, towering figure in the tradition. And so this is this is a very short piece where the, the protagonist um, or the, the, yeah, the central character in Tender, Catherine, um, who's openly based on me, um, is... She, it's a scene in the college newspaper office um, where she has she's writing for the literary pages of Trinity News, the college newspaper, and um, she's uh, just getting ready for she's doing her work, which is basically because she's writing about uh, um, new new books. Um, basically, involves interviewing older male writers. She wrote the McCabe interview up quickly once she got a desk in the crowded publications office chopping it off a couple hundred words. Reluctantly, when it was finished, all the good quotes he had given her were long ones and she wished she could fit them in. But with them in, with them in there was no space for anything about the actual novel and she printed it out. Seeing it emerge on the tray, Emmett Doyle crossed the room to pick it up for her, looking at the first page as he brought it to her desk. Patrick McCabe strides into the bright surroundings of Cafe Irie and Temple Bar, looking like a man who is at once distracted and intense, he read aloud. What is this, a novel? Give me that, she said, snatching it from him. He was grinning at her, and for a moment she could almost see what James had meant. He was kind of attractive, his skin clear, his eyes a dark, striking blue, his lanky frame perched now on the edge of her desk. But it was so conventional, his attractiveness. It was not the kind of thing she had imagined whispering over with James. There's a letter for you, by the way, poetess, he said, nodding towards the mailbox on the opposite wall. Did you get it? No, Catherine said, getting up. How long has it been? A couple of days, Emmett shrugged. It's probably Pat McCabe's wife warning you to stop stalking him. Fuck off, she laughed, taking down the envelope. It was handwritten and bearing a Dublin postmark. She tore it open to find a curt note from the publicist of the novelist, Michael Doonan, granting her the interview with him that she had been chasing for months. She was, the publicist explained, to be given 40 minutes on a Friday afternoon the following month. And the questions were to focus on Doonan's new novel, Engines of Everything, not on the earlier trilogy, which had been recently made into a controversial television series. This gave her a few weeks for preparation, which is just as well, because she had only read one of Doonan's books and and she wanted to do a good job on the interview because he so rarely granted them. Restraining order, Emmett said, coming up to her at the mailbox. He was grinning as widely as ever, but the blush was back again. She watched its progress across the smooth skin of his face. Very funny, she said, stuffing the envelope into her pocket. Well, enjoy production night. I have dinner waiting for me. He gave her a disbelieving look. What, has your mother moved in with you or something? No, she said, laughing. Just my friend, James. Oh, James, is it? That's the ginger. I saw you hugging outside the arts block this morning. I was heartbroken, Riley. I thought the time we spent together on Saturday night meant something. You came back to my place. 
with about 100 other people. And then this morning, I'm coming out of my politics lecture. You were not coming out of a politics tutorial at half 11 in the morning. To see you, I resent that, by the way. To see you with your arms around another man, I'm heartbroken, Riley. Devastated. This was Doyle's usual routine, this layering of sarcasm onto mockery, onto brazen cheek, onto what deep down might even be a trace of genuine honesty until it was impossible to tell which was which and what was what. It was a code, deep irony by means of the presence of sincerity in which he and a few of the other TN guys frequently spoke and Catherine could not get her head around it. Talking to them, she tried to imitate it, but her efforts always seemed to come out just sounding bitchy. Fuck off, Doyle, she said now, and exactly that thing happened, but Emmett seemed not to notice. You brought my friend, you brought your friend to my party the other night, right? I was talking to him for a while. Yeah, he just got back from Berlin. Very strong, culty accent for a German. Hilarious, she said, as she gathered the things from the desk, her notes, her jacket, her bag. Right, I'm off home, she said, making for the door. Okay, I'll leave it there. So we'll get to it. There's a lot of questions coming in the on the chat now, but I'd just like to say one um, quick thing in response to that reading, which is that, you know, I feel many of the ways in which you talk about um, or describe gender in that novel are, um, I suppose, prescient, prescient isn't exactly the word, but they, um, they were ideas that people took up later than you and became more central to the way we think about those things. And um, it's one of the things about tender is that in many ways it's ahead of its time and describing... Maybe which, I should have called it gender. <laughs> um, well, I don't know, maybe, 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 maybe it's time for a sequel. Um, but, um, uh, no, but let's get to some of the questions because they're in the chat. So, so um, this is a question from Laura. Uh, do you think there's a huge difference in terms of the Gen X experience and the experience of millennials people born from the mid-80s to the mid-90s that may be connected to what we were just talking about. Right. Um, yeah, but just because of the, the experience that they had in terms of the internet, because, you know, for people of our generation, Barry, the internet was, was, a, was one computer in college that you got to sit on for half an hour in the morning, you know. Um, but, but by the time somebody even seven or eight years younger um, was growing up, it was... It was a constant, you know. It was it was the air around your head, um, and now it's obviously so ever present that it's not even worth talking about. But um, I think that made a big difference. Um, how I I don't know, um, but but I mean, if you look at the the difference um, between the numbers of people from the seventy born in the seventies, say. You know, who published novels and the numbers of people born in the late 80s and 90s who are publishing and publishing early, it is significant. You know, there is a sort of, I think there's a, there's a confidence and it's, it's a good thing. Um, there is a, there's access, there's a different kind of, um, thankfully, a different notion of who should publish a novel and who shouldn't. You know, the gatekeepers are different. They're not really, they don't, have, the gatekeepers don't have as much power anymore. They're really pissed off about it. It's great. Um, I suppose there's more gates to keep as well. I mean, as in this, if one is shut, there's other ones uh, too. Um, yeah. What about gender in, in that sense? Because in, in tender, we have, um, it happens in two different, I mean, gender in the broadest sense. We have Catherine, who is making her way as um, a talented, but sometimes uncertain woman in this world of Trinity. And then we have her friend, 
James, who's gay, and when I, I mean, since 1997, my last year in college, um, when I started college, I um, there was not there was almost no person I knew of who was an out gay person it, in Trinity. There was um, it was almost unheard of. Um, so you capture, I think, Trinity at this. Um, I mean, Ireland, but in in the microcosm of Trinity campus at this moment when things were really shifting and quite 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 rapidly. Oh, well, I mean, I admit much the same experience, Barry. I mean, I was a few years behind you, but um, people didn't um, come out. You know, it just was, it was so difficult. Um, and um, that was the first generation, I mean, after decriminalization, right? Like decriminalization was in 1993. So if you were in college in 1997, then you were the first person to turn 18 um, who didn't risk, you know, in theory, being arrested if you snogged your boyfriend and you were also a boy or, you know, a girl and also a girl. Um, so, or, well, if there was evidence that you slept with them, because of course the crime was about the sexual act. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it was just part of what I, because it was, I mean, I, I don't really know what to say to that um, in some senses. Um, I don't think it was very different by the time we left, by the way. Like I left in 2000. Um, it was still pretty unusual for someone to come out. And what about Catherine herself and her uh, uncertainties and um, those kinds of interactions in the publications office? I, I suppose this is an old question. Um, do things get better or does the, does the patriarchy just linger like a bad smell that can never be got rid of? When I was in college, I was so in awe of women, um, like in my time, like Anya O'Keefe and Avril Keating, who were student, the student union women's rights officers or women's um, officers in the East, you know, the women who were at the front of the, because the protests were happening, you know, the, the protests against um, the, um, the, the, the referenda that were happening around abortion and divorce were recent. The, um, there were several, you know, reasons for, for women to be out on the streets. Um, and I wasn't really, a, I wasn't, I didn't consider myself um, a part of that. I, I don't, I mean, it's not something I'm proud of, but I was, I felt um, in, uninformed and I just didn't have the, the guts to, you know, to be like, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to be um, um, the women's rights officer in the student union, the amount of shit you'd have to deal with, first of all, but also just knowing how, what, how to do that and, and what, to, you know, what was, what was needed. So in a way I spent, you know, I, I kind of, I succeeded by kind of keeping my head down and, um, and, um, you know, pandering a little. And again, that's part, again, part of what I'm talking about when I say that I kind of after like long way into my, like way in, into my early thirties before I kind of looked up and thought, you know, uh, I've kind of pretended a lot not to be um, a woman writing. So this connects very well to a question that is from Simon. Um, the transitional period you map out in Tender feels pr like primarily a moral exploration rather than a nostalgic one. Do you agree with that? Um, yes, I do. But I mean, it's not really for me to say, but I do, I do agree that um, there's, a moral, um, there's a moral arc to the novel, which begins, and it's about, um, and ironically, 
it's about respect for another person's privacy. And so at the beginning of the novel, there's the situation that Catherine is in with her parents and with the local neighbor who spies on her and, you know, she can't, nothing is allowed. And obviously James as an, a closeted young gay man, nothing is allowed. And by the end, the final scene, which is set in a, in a gallery, um, Catherine is walking around looking at images of James's lovers, you know, so he's free to say, these are the men that I've loved. But of course there's the irony as well, that he's, he's using their images. You know, he's, he's, um, he's free to say, these are my lovers, but, they may, not, they may not be free to say, well, I don't particularly want to be in a photograph on the on gallery wall in Chelsea, thank you. So the moral arc or the moral journey there um, is from, it's from um, everyone's business, your business is everyone's business, to um, your business is your own. And I think that's, you know, that is the change from the baby boomers to the millennials. And we're in the middle of that. Um, so um, somebody called Catherine is asking, at, at the beginning of Tender, Catherine is unsettled by James' openness and honesty. Do you think Catherine's reaction is a hallmark of older generations uh, of Irish people? Could millennials relate? Well, I don't know if millennials... Well, I know, I mean, I did, when, when that novel came out, um, I did get a lot of letters from or even DMs, I should say, not letters from younger people. Um, Yes, it is. I mean, that's the way she's learned to think. We learn, you know, we learn to think um, in the language and in the thought, the thought, you know, think the thought rhythms of the people who teach us. And um, she has inherited those modes of reacting and thinking. And it'll take her um, work to uh, to step out of them and replace them with something else. So here's a very specific question, Belinda, from Murish. Um, about Germany, and I'm I'm interested in it because my memory of college too is that a lot of people went to work um, in Germany in the summers and came back. But also, in general, that a lot of people went to Europe um, mm -hmm. for the summers. Um, I did modern languages, so I saw so was a lot of it. But then, who came back, and they brought a lot back with them, the seeds of a sexual revolution in ways. So, Marish's question is. Um, Berlin figures as this imagined place as part of the Irish diaspora. I suppose he's talking about the, the he has a culture accent for a German. That must be the where this was. Um, right. So James goes to Berlin for a year to work as an apprentice to a photographer there. So he's, um, so Berlin figures as this imagined place, but is often overshadowed by places like Britain and the US. What role does Germany and Berlin play in the diasporic imagination of the Gen X Irish? I think about Joxer goes to Stuttgart by Christy Moore as one cultural <laughs> Right. And um, I mean, it's, is it the Generation X Berlin? Like, is it the Berlin when the wall fell? Because that, that is the gener that's Berlin of, the gener of Generation X. Or is it, is it Berlin now, you know, where, where, where at least one uh, Gen X novelist I can think of is living? Um, what, what role does it play? Um, I think that it's 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 still a utopia of um, of, uh, of of some sort of intellectual freedom and of privacy, um, and I've also also um, it's affordable apparently. <laughs> um, I don't know whether that's still the case, but it's a place where people can live and produce work. You know, work, not even produce work. That's a neoliberal way of thinking about art. A, a place where people can practice their art and not have to. Uh, pay, you know, pay rent that is impossible to pay without also um, working. Um, 
So I don't know much about Berlin, as is probably obvious from my answer, but my sense of it uh, is that it's a place um, that many artists would like Ireland to be more like. And it does play an important structural role in, in tender. As, um, it does, but it's the Berlin of it's the Berlin of the late nineties, and it's I mean, yeah, James James the character in tender goes to Berlin to work as an apprentice photographer with 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 a you know a, a famous photographer, and um, but he doesn't have a, he doesn't really have a great time there. It's not like he you know his 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 um his repression follows him. He doesn't manage to get over it. Berlin isn't his awakening. And, you know, that in a way was kind of a symptom of just how much of a number Ireland did on that generation. You know, that it's not so, it's not just as simple as going in your Erasmus year and coming back without your virginity. <laughs> Didn't work like that for everybody. Yeah, leave it behind. Yeah. Um, so, um, actually, so Joseph has just anticipated my next question, indeed, which is, he says, is living in the U.S. affecting your creativity? Um, the way I would have phrased the question myself was... Um, what did America, you left, um, you said after college, you stayed in Ireland for quite a few years, working for the Irish Times and uh, studying philosophy. And then you lived out to New York and you're still there. So what did, uh, what has America meant to you? Has that changed? And indeed, as Joseph says, has it shaped your life and mind as a writer? Well, I mean, I wrote my two novels when I was living here. Um, so it didn't in any way stump my creativity, but I do find that I miss, and I miss almost to the point of thinking that I have, you know, I have to, like, I don't think I can, I don't really see myself here long-term, partly because um, I really miss the texture of what it sounds like to live in Ireland, you know, listening to people's voices and listening to ways of speech. Um, really miss that and I, I not even just in a conscious way I think that is affecting my um uh, my ability to write to some to some extent um but in other ways I mean America has been so such a gift I mean when I came here um I I was introduced via I was taking a course um at the time and I, I just I was introduced to writers I'd never heard of and you know basically my my reading list opened up beyond the the, the writers that I was faithfully reading the McGarrens and Joyce's and Trevor's and you know even Anne Enright and O'Brien Ed and O'Brien you know the, the great like the great presences um but I started reading Deborah Eisenberg who's been really important to me um Antonia Nelson um um George Saunders. Uh, I mean, there's. I, I don't. I don't have my list ready, but um, there's a lot of them, and a lot of them are short story writers. Actually, um, I think that the American tradition of the short story is so different to the Irish one, and it has so much more kind of muscular. Well, maybe that's no longer the case, but it has a. Um, it's it's a more it's more of a Generation X form actually than it was in Ireland, where for so long it was it was um, under the Joycean boot, you know. Although you could say that Dubliners is, is a Generation X book. Oh, ahead I think, of its time. I think so very much. Yeah, very much. And all, I mean, especially it's a kind of early 90s Generation X book in the sense of um, um, also people kind of so not wandering around with nothing to do. seems like they're not quite the way to put it, but I mm -hmm. think you, you know what I mean. Um, but I suppose, and this is a question they always ask, um, just, you know, there's the being separated from Irish ways of speech and all that, but is there an artistic freedom in being away from Ireland also? Yeah, massively. 
nobody gives a fuck. Nobody knows who, no, I mean, not that anybody knows who I am at home, but you know what I mean? It's such a small country. Wherever you live is going to be such a small town. Um, there is immense um, freedom here in just, you know, just getting lost in the crowd. And um, I think I've done that in an even more conscious way. You know, we moved out of the city. We moved to a small city upstate. Um, nobody really even knows I'm a writer here. So it's, it's, there's, there's absolutely no expectation. And that's a bad thing and a good thing at the same time. Um, I always get much more nervous doing Irish events um, than I do doing American events. And I know this kind of straddles the two, but um, there's a deep self-consciousness that, um, what, you know, the Irish version of me as a writer is hit by that the version of me in America doesn't really have but sadly I'm Irish to the bone. So the, the self-consciousness wins. You know, I was, I was talking about this with my class. I teach, um, I'm teaching a Zoom class for the, uh, for the um, Irish Writers' Centre at the moment. And we were talking about, you know, self-consciousness and the idea of, um, there's a, um, a letter that Elizabeth Bishop wrote to Anne Stevenson where she talked about self-forgetfulness being the, the, you know, the aim to create art. You want to, you want to achieve a certain type of self-forgetfulness um, a kind of useless concentration. And we were talking about how in the Irish scene and the Irish literary scene, such as it is, it's so difficult to achieve that because there's always chatter in your head. And, you know, I'm talking about missing the sound of Irish voices and, and the turns of phrase. And obviously the flip side of that is those voices, you know, the kind of the, the, the chatter and the notion that um, everyone in the village has something to say. And, and do you find the U.S. has changed um, in ways that um, the, the culture of literary... I hopefully mean, I, changed. It's hopefully changed a lot in the last... Uh, we, no. Um, well, I mean, I don't know how to even begin answering a question, Barry. I think that... Here's what I think. I think we, ha we have now a few years of possible respite. And in 2024, it's going to be worse than it was in 2016. That's what I think is going to happen. I think that the morning after the election, even though it was, I still believed that Biden was going to win, to see the sheer number of votes that that man received, uh, that's not good. You know, things are, things are very, very damaged here. Um, what about the literary and cultural landscape? You, know, you're, you teach at Rutgers, to, so you're connected to the university world. I mean, it's, you know, there, there's so much terrific work being done. Like, there's so many brilliant writers. Um, yeah, that's great. But it's not much, you know, to be a brilliant writer once, you know, Jessamine Ward's wrote, Jessamine Ward, the, the novelist, um, wrote a, an amazing piece for, I think, The Atlantic about her, her husband died of COVID in March, you know. Um, like, the, there, there's a terrific generation of writers and they will be beset by exactly the same problems and injustices and inequalities as the non-writer citizens of America. Um, yes, there's going to be some powerful short stories and novels out of this experience. That's, but um, I mean, in a very genera generation X way, so what? If, if, the, if the underlying conditions are, are, are not going to be changed, um, I suppose I was more curious to know if you think it's, it's if you've seen a change in any way, if you think the literary culture in the U.S. has uh, shifted or 
grown or altered in the time you've 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 been there? Just in terms of diversity, which is really noticeable. Um, I came here in two thousand and five, and you know, you open the review pages or look around the classroom, and most of the faces were white, um, and that's changed. There's there's, a, there's obviously far more awareness of how um, how many people are writing and how many people have been um, in the you know for too long sort of uh, left out of the room. Um, there's some, I mean, that's the main thing, I guess. And um, I don't have, I mean, in terms of, you know, talking about stylistic changes or stylistic patterns or trends. No, I, I, I don't think, um, I, just, I don't even think I have enough distance on 15 years here to talk about that. That'll become apparent maybe in 20 years if we're still here. Uh, and what about what you see of Ireland from your, your, your perch over there? Um, it's, you know, it's, I, I'm sure it happens to you as well. People often talk about it now, um, with great uh, admiration as a place where the, the political life is healthier, where um, uh, s social mores are becoming more liberal and more open. Uh, that's what doesn't Americans say uh, often. And um, what's, what's your sense of looking at Ireland from over there and how it, it's going? Pretty good. You know, um, I keep in touch with it largely through um, social media and uh, podcasts, actually. And, um, you know, I listened to something like uh, Una Mullally, um and her co-host, I can't remember her co-host's name, damn it. They have a podcast called United Ireland, which is not about the wish for United Ireland, but about um, Ireland in a, in, a, in a large way. Um, and I just really... I just really admire the like intelligence and kind of forthrightness and irreverence and you know the, there's just a, a really continuing frankness and um, yes irony uh, about the way that Irish people talk about their own country and what's happening there. Um, I think I think it's doing fine. Good, long may it last. Um, uh, well, thank you very much. We're going to uh, start winding up now. Um, that uh, that flew. Um, we're really very grateful that you made this um, this time for us. It was great to hear from you, and we're all looking forward to uh, whatever you um, write next. I'm, I'm not going to ask because I always think um, people need to keep that to themselves. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but we're, we're all looking forward to it. Um, for those of us who've joined us, um, our next guest is the writer Paul Murray, and that will be at the same time on the 6th of January. So just Nolignaman, uh, we will, uh, the, the epiphany, we will, I'll be talking to Paul Murray. Um, so thank you, Belinda, and uh, thank you, everybody, for um, joining us this evening. Thanks, Barry, and thanks to everybody and to Molly. Take care. <laughs>